Welcome, my name is Bruce. I didn't say my name earlier. I need to get used to saying my name out loud. My name is Bruce, I'm the pastor here. Hi, welcome. So if you're watching, maybe you're watching for the first time. I'm Bruce and I'm the pastor around here and we are almost done with the book of Genesis. Here's where we've been, or at least this past Sunday, uh, we talked about forgiveness and reconciliation and what can happen when reconciliation actually happens, not just in these ancient people's lives and in their families, all the way back in Genesis, but even today, to really experience joy out of a reconciled relationship with God and other people, a new purpose that we have, that we can begin to understand and clearly see the peace that we have with God and others, the preservation and God's promise and presence, and really more than that. But we spent a few minutes looking at those outcomes of reconciliation. And now this morning, what we're gonna focus in on is blessing. And I'll share a quick story with you here. Uh, there's a picture of Emily Wernest. We support Emily. She's part of our Acts 1-8 strategy. Uh, she has been part of YWAM Denver and ministering there uh, as a part of a, a discipleship program that they have with younger students there. Uh, this past year has been very difficult for Emily. There have been changes that have happened that have been hard to take, and I won't get into all the details of that, but it's just been a... a kind of a traumatic time, really, emotionally. Uh, the cart's been tipped over, and it's been a time of questioning uh, why God is this happening, and, and, and what God do you have for me and these people that I've been discipling. So she's been going through a difficult time, and if you think of it, send her a message and say hi and, and encourage her, support her, let her know that you're praying for her, that'd be good. Uh, anyway, we were messaging back and forth. I told her we're gonna talk about blessings this morning, and she shared with me just a little quick story. You see a picture of her on the screen with her new roommate, Armisha, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, uh, is her new roommate. She lives in a house, it's a large house, so there's different roommates that are there in the house. And Emily was going through what I was describing as a very difficult time this past fall. And on top of that, she's gonna have to get used to a new roommate. And maybe some of you had the same roommate for a while and you've forgotten what that can be like. But others, maybe you're new into that or just starting to do that and you can uh, easily remember uh, how challenging that can be. So Emily was not looking forward to going through one more change uh, in meeting and getting to know Armisha and having to adjust to that. Uh, but as Emily told me, uh, looking back over the last few months, Emily said she can't imagine the past couple of months without her there. She is the friend I didn't know I needed this season. That's a blessing, right? And that's a, what, a, what a wonderful story and what a wonderful way to get us thinking about how God does things when we least expect it, when we're not looking for it, or how God can rearrange, turn things around when all we see is what? Difficulty, work, potential conflict, struggle, you know, everything negative or, or just hard. I don't want this other thing, God. And then, you know, the blessing of being able to have perspective on things, right? To look back as Emily has done recently and, and see a blessing in it. Emily went on to say, the Lord knows better. And even when it looks like all things are going against me, he's working out something that turns out to be a blessing, we're coming to the end of Genesis. Every time we work through a book, I feel kind of sad at the end because I feel like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend. 
Maybe you don't feel like that. I don't know. I, maybe we should do a survey later and see how you actually feel, okay, if you would actually tell me. Actually, I would like to hear how you actually feel about Genesis. So there's your challenge, okay? Send me an email or a text or whatever. It's, it's this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're done with the book. I would love to hear your input. Some of you said that you've enjoyed this trip through Genesis, and that's great. Um, I'd like to hear more than, yeah, that was a good thing. I'd like to know why it's a good thing, or if it wasn't a good thing, you know, I got thick skin, the big boy pants are on, I can take it, whatever. So just, I, I would like to have some feedback on it. But anyway... You get to the end of a book, I, I feel kind of sad because we're getting ready to say goodbye to an old friend, uh, but these last two uh, messages at the end of the book, so much meaning, uh, and uh, especially this morning when we begin talking about blessing. Uh, you may recall that as we've gone through different sections of the book, uh, each section kind of ends uh, in a definite way. There's a genealogy, here's a review of the family and the kids, uh, and along with that, there are many times blessings, especially as a patriarch ages and he's about to die and he blesses the kids and sends them on and then a new chapter unfolds. Okay, does that sound familiar? And we're seeing that again here at the end of the book. So this morning, we're gonna look at three blessings that are prominent in chapters 47, 48, and 49. There's one for each chapter. These are lengthy chapters. We're not going to go through all the narrative and all the detail of what's going on. You really should read all of what's going on to fill you out, but we're going to focus in and what I, I think we can handle this morning on those blessings. We're going to consider three blessings and uh, the uniqueness and uh, how they stand out is kind of interesting and maybe kind of strange even. And then how these blessings point us forward to, uh, I would say, uh, an ultimate blessing. So let's look at the first one, Jap Genesis chapter 47. And here's the, uh, the quick background, okay? We kind of bring us up to speed here. Joseph, we've seen the last couple of sermons, Joseph has done the big reveal to his brothers, and they've realized now that he's alive. They thought he was dead 20 years ago, and here he is living and in charge of Egypt, for crying out loud. Who would have thought that, right? Uh, and then all the brothers have been brought into Egypt, and, uh, and then Joseph wanted to, to know for sure if Jacob, his father, was alive, and so he sends the big, fancy, expensive caravan to impress him and to send a message, and as um, Jacob sees the caravan we saw last week, his heart stopped. Uh, ESV says his heart was numb, but literally his heart stopped, and then as he realizes what's going on, it must be true. Joseph must be alive. And so they all gather, and they, they move back into Egypt, and then we get the rest of the story, what's going on. Joseph is reunited, is reconciled with his father, and the weeping, and the, and the celebration. It's this beautiful picture of what reconciliation can do, and what was so broken, and dysfunctional, and evil, and sinful. All of that is pointing to this majestic, glorious good that God is doing in, in the lives of this family, with Jacob's family. So it's good, rich, deep stuff. And then it leads us to some other details we see in the first one in chapter 47. So let's read these few verses here, 7, 8, and 9. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? 
And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And then it kind of ends dramatically. He, he blessed Pharaoh, and then he walks out from the presence of all, almighty Pharaoh, you know, king, sovereign of Egypt. Now, as I was studying, I've been looking at this whole series, I've been looking at different um, scholars and different commentators, uh, and especially unique passages, like what in the world do they make of this, you know, as I'm studying. And I, I found it very fascinating that everybody was reading, nobody really zeroed in on these comments that are made by Jacob before Pharaoh. And I think they're missing something. So maybe we can gain something that these other guys miss. Because when I read that, I just have to stop and wait a second. He, and especially at this point in Jacob's life, uh, he, he's seen his son again, right? And he's in Egypt before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh asks him this question, and as he looks back over his life, what is it that comes to mind? You see that in the verse? Few and evil have been my 130 years. <laughs> That's all he's got to offer in the moment. I think that is fascinating, <clears throat> excuse me, and kind of intriguing. If somebody has water, I would love to have that blessing this morning, if you could bring it up. But anyway, we'll keep moving. Consider just for a moment, oh, thank you, my dear. This is my wife, Jennifer. Is she on the screen right now? Okay. She loves being on camera. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. So consider Jacob's life for a moment. We're going to look back, get the quick summary, get the quick overview. Way back, just as he's being born, back to chapter 25, there was a clash in the womb with Esau. Do you remember that? And that set the stage for this lifelong conflict, not only between Jacob and Esau, but Jacob and pretty much everybody he ever came in contact with. He displaces Esau, but what does he gain from that? He gains fear. Remember that? He has to run for his life. He gains guilt. He gains this long exile. So many years go by. Uh, and then also, fast forward as he's in exile, he goes, and, and that whole dramatic uh, sequence that we had with Laban, remember that? Jacob gets Rachel, the woman that he really loved, but only after years of imposed marriage with Leah, the woman he didn't love, all the domestic strife, and the deception that goes on between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. And then eventually he loses Rachel due to childbirth. And then fast forward from there, Jacob gets a new name from an angel, this encounter with this heavenly being. Remember that? They wrestle together, uh, and Jacob says, I'm not going to let go to you, bless me. And what's the blessing? A limp for the rest of his life, okay? The touching of the, of the hip, he lets go but there's this lifelong, I think it's lifelong, reminder. So the rest of his days, he's limping around. What kind of a blessing is that, right? Uh, he gets a new name, but he gets a limp to go with it. He has many sons. You could say he's got a full quiver. Uh, that's a good thing. That's a blessing. But look at what happens with his family, right? The, the, not just the internal struggle that they have as, as brothers, as half-brothers, never really getting along together, and then also the terrible things they got into each other. So not just internal, but the things they do to other people. 
it's terrible, the things that happen. And then Jacob spends at least 20 years longing uh, to be reunited with his son that he thinks is dead. What? I mean, this is a lifelong of struggle. There's blessing there within that life, but there's also struggle. And as he looks back before Pharaoh, what does he recount? What's the thing that comes to mind as he looks back? Oh, look at all these blessings. God's been good. He's provided in all these different ways. Nope. My life has been long and hard and evil. <laughs> then he walks out. Wow. I mean, I, I think that's pretty intense and pretty profound. Jacob is able, I think, in some ways, in some places, to see and remember the blessings, but he's also severely affected by those difficult things, even, as he says, those evil things in his life. So, so what are we supposed to take of this? I think this is important. I don't think this is something that we just gloss over. Oh, he says something weird before Pharaoh goes on his way. Uh, no, I think mixed into the blessing that's going on there is uh, that he gives to Pharaoh, that, that there's something there that we should stop and look at. But the question is, okay, what is that? <laughs> How do you apply this? Well, I don't think there's a direct application to our lives and what goes on there, but I will offer at least one thing this morning. I will offer what I think is going on in Jacob's head when he stands there and all he sees is evil and problems in this life filled with blessings of 130 years. I think the reason that he doesn't see and mention the blessings is because Jacob is not home. That's what I think is going on. Because he also mentions what? The sojournings, all of this life this long life and all these things that gone through have been wandering around. He doesn't go on all these details, but he could have, right? Been wandering around this desert, basically, trying to find this place that the Lord has promised he's going to give to me, and it never quite happens. He can never put down the tent peg, so to speak, and say, I'm finally home. I've finally arrived, and it's worth it all because I've been through all this, right? I've finally walked in the door, turn the key. No, he never gets there. And I think that's the one thing that is in the back of his head that pushes down any remembrance of blessing and pushes up everything to remember that's hard. Now, speaking of not being home yet, this is a picture of me and my dad. Uh, this, is, this was taken just a few months before my dad passed away, so he's 102 years old. And uh, my dad didn't smile a whole lot because he's a Great Depression person, okay? He was born, he's a Great Depression era kind of guy. And uh, most people fall into two camps. Life is meant to be enjoyed, enjoy the blessings, right? Or life is meant to be endured. You just get, the, hey, we're still alive tonight, you know? No one starved, no one got bit by a snake or died of dysentery or whatever, you know? So we, we made it through, right? That was kind of my dad's generation. Maybe some of you know of some folks or maybe your parents were like that. Anyway, he didn't smile a whole lot because he wasn't home. Uh, one of the things, and this picture, I, I really like, appreciate this picture. It's one of the last pictures I have with him. But also that day, is in Ankeny, Iowa. Uh, we had just recently gone through the old farmhouse. And uh, one of the things that my dad missed from home was his coin collection. He had, 
he's got ancient pennies and other coins, you know, from way back, from, you know, Indian head and, and 100 years old kind of stuff that he'd been gathering and keeping for many, many years. Uh, and he thought they'd been lost. Actually, he thought they'd been stolen. He thought somebody had come in because he couldn't find them. And this is after he's, you know, gotten a lot older uh, and maybe everything wasn't quite clear. But he thought they were gone forever. We were going through the house and we found them. Now, I have got to get these to dad so he can see them because what was lost is now found. And we went, we sat out. This is, you know, in the midst of COVID. So we had to meet outside. And it's like close to 90 degrees. I'm a t-shirt and shorts. And, you know, when you get to be 100, you're cold no matter what, right? So dad's got his jacket on, in case you're wondering. It's middle of summer, and he's got his jacket on. And I said, guess what, dad? Guess what we found? And I get to pull out those coins, and I set them out. And he smiled for the first time, and I don't know how long it had ever been. And he's still almost smiling in this picture, okay? Uh, it was just this beautiful moment. Because everything else we talked about near the end of dad's life, he really struggled with. You know, dad, what should we do with the house? What should we do with the farm? What, what would you like us to consider? You know, all those kind of questions that you kind of throw out and when you know the end is coming. And he didn't have an answer for any of them. Why? Because he's not there in his home yet. So none of it actually really connected. Why does it matter if I can't be there and be a part of it? Is that making sense? So it was, just, it was a beautiful moment to see him smile one more time and to enjoy those moments together as he's smiling. We're talking about the coins, gave us something to talk about for a change. But I was thinking about that time with my dad as I was thinking about Jacob. Because I think there's something similar going on there. The struggle with life and how life has mistreated you. Dad had plenty of, of blessings that he could recount over his long life. Uh, but when you're not home, the blessings kind of drift into the background. So let me throw this out for you this morning. As we talk about blessings, some blessings, in fact, I will say the blessings we have in life, all of them are incomplete. And this is where I think the account of Jacob points us toward, what I have on their screen. No matter the number of blessings you've received or the way in which you've received them, our blessings now in this life serve to remind us that there's something still missing. The point isn't the blessings themselves. And that's super important to remember because what do we usually get caught up in? Especially when we talk about God things, right? Well, they're blessings, right? Uh, we, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying a blessing. The point is, looking beyond the blessings to what they should be creating a longing for. Do you get that? So if we caught up in just what's good in this life, we're not longing for anything else. And I'm sure you've noticed, as we experience blessings, God gives us blessings from his hand. They're, they're limited. So... They're there to whet our appetite for him, not more blessings, and not more stuff, and not more, you know, the, the outcomes of those blessings. Because the end, no matter what the blessing is, think about it. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we've been blessed materially, and we have things to enjoy and things to use. Sometimes our blessings are in relationships, like what I shared with Emily. Sometimes the blessings go beyond that with our family and with our kids. All those things are good. Every single one of them, however, ends. And there's something in us that says, there's got to be something more, like Jacob, like my dad, like maybe what you're thinking of this morning. 
Blessings are great and they're wonderful at the time, but they end. What is it that truly satisfies, that fills that longing? That's the first, the incomplete blessing that we have in chapter 47. Now we're going to move on to a different blessing, and that's in chapter 48. So here's the background of this chapter. Uh, Joseph brings his two sons. We've already been introduced to them in a previous chapter, Manasseh and Ephraim, okay? These two sons he has, he named them with Hebrew names, even though he's, you know, kind of, he's in this weird mixed cultural world because he knows he's Hebrew, uh, but he's also got all this Egyptian culture he lives in. But he wanted to make sure that his sons were connected to the Hebrew culture that he came out of. So Manasseh, Ephraim, those are Hebrew names, okay? And he brings his sons to Jacob, and in chapter 48, Jacob adopts them. So that's not part of the blessing that we're focusing in on, and it does seem kind of odd, but it's not completely uh, foreign to ancient times for a grandfather to do something like this. So anyway, Joseph brings them uh, to Jacob. Jacob adopts them as his own, making them not just kids, like he needs more mouths to feed, but making them children of the covenant. And that's what's huge for us this morning. Now, we're going to fill in the rest of those blanks next week, okay? The children of the covenant and how this rounds out the family in a very special way. We'll get there. But as Joseph uh, listens to his father, Jacob, and speaks of adopting them, then Joseph brings his boys close to his aging father in a way that he could bless them, where he could reach out and touch them and place his right hand on the oldest, Manasseh. And that's where we jump into chapter 48. And Israel, or Jacob, same, same guy, different names, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. You can always hear him. I know, I know, my son. He, sa- he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Strange uh, thing that's going on here. Can you picture it? Can you picture it? Jacob reaches out to bless them, and he crosses his hands. Strange, right? But that right hand, uh, that is the prominent, that is the major blessing. So he reaches out to the younger boy, and the left hand, excuse me, goes to the older boy. Joseph sees that happening as we read, no, dad, you're wrong, don't do this. It must be your eyesight. You're old, you're getting confused. No, it's not that at all. He's doing it, and he makes it very clear what he's doing 
is on purpose, giving the younger boy the greater blessing. Now, what's going on here? What we see in this blessing account is the furthering of what we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. So we must take note of that. This is consistent in the story of God and how these men have been blessed throughout this uh, journey. Remember Isaac and Ishmael, who gets the, the greater blessing, okay? Remember Jacob and Esau, and now again with Ephraim, the younger before Manasseh. Why is this so important? It is radically important for understanding of what's going the family and beyond. God shows consistently that he seeks out to bless through the father, through Jacob, to bless, uh, to multiply and honor the least over the greatest. He does that consistently throughout the story. God does not follow, nor is he limited by the rules or the customs or the preferences of man or culture. And God, with the new covenant that we see just around the corner, we see him adopting all people into his family, all true believers into the family of God in the same way. God does not look at people and pronounce certain importance on certain people just because of their age or their place in life or any kind of standard that man puts on greatness. God considers the heart. God considers other things more important than what man says. Uh, the beauty of the heart of the gospel is in, uh, encased into this story of what's going on with the least and the youngest receiving the greatest blessing. Uh, if I don't have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, turn real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul gives us his way of understanding the least to the greatest, so to speak, or the least to the blessed and what's going on in Paul's life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll begin with verse 3 that Paul is really describing to them really the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news. What is going on with the good news? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then get this, as he begins to change the focus to his own life. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. He looks at his life, what he's known for, the sins that he's committed. He says, as one untimely born. Uh, it's a graphic way. He, he's saying, I was stillborn. I was dead. I was nothing. I was, I was worthless. He's, he, he grabs an image there uh, that's, that's harsh, but he's trying to get a point across. All these other people, look, you know, all these 
great examples, but then he appears to me. Me? Are you kidding me? I, what, what, who am I? I am what I am, he says, by the grace of God. I am the least of these, and yet the gospel blesses me, Paul says, and elevates me to this place that I am. That's the gospel. No one can come to Jesus and say, I deserve it, what you give. And at the same time, no one come, can come to Jesus and say, I'm not worthy. I'm nothing. Because Jesus' love pours out to everyone, and especially God's heart is for the least of these, for those that are oppressed or persecuted or forgotten or neglected. Those people, that's what Jesus' heart really beats for. And he says, come in, be in my family. You're forgiven and you're loved and you're restored. The least of these become the greatest in the kingdom. So many times Jesus teaches and there's parables and the gospels continue to reinforce that thought. And then Paul gets it. He has this moment to the Corinthians where it just pours out of him. He gets it. I understand who I was and I've been blessed beyond measure because of the gospel at work in my life. Do you remember that? Do you remember a moment like what Paul says where the light turns on and, and you have to admit and you, and you want to admit, I don't deserve anything that you have blessed me with, God. I don't deserve any of your blessings, period. And yet you love me. You died for me. You gave everything to restore me, to place me in your family. It's a beautiful thought. Every time we see the reverse blessing in Genesis, that ought to point us to and remind us of who Jesus is and what his heart is for us. I think I mentioned it here, yes, the reverse blessings. Those, those who don't deserve it or don't think they'll ever receive it, get the favored blessing in Christ. One more, and we're gonna turn our attention to chapter 49. It's more of a future blessing, okay? I mentioned the very beginning, uh, each of these sections of Genesis uh, typically end with a blessing as the patriarch is getting old and about to die, and then he gives the blessing on to his kids. And so in chapter 49, Jacob, in this very lengthy oracle, we'll call it that, in this lengthy account, he is blessing, because he's got all these sons everywhere, uh, so of course it's a, a long chapter, and he's giving these final words, so to speak, to his sons. Now we see in the beginning of chapter 49, the oldest sons, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, are more cursed than blessed, okay? Uh, there is sin in their lives. They have done some pretty terrible things that I'm not saying they're beyond the grace of God, but I think it is apparent in the way that Jacob speaks to them is that they haven't repented. Uh, there, there is no indication that they have, at least in the narrative, that they're looking at what they've done and say, you know, I'm wrong. I've done what's, what's evil in the sight of God. I've been humbled. But as we pointed out, Judah stands out in stark contrast to his older brothers. So Jacob refers to and speaks to Reuben and Simeon and Levi first. They're the older ones. They're more cursed than they are blessed. But then the attention turns to Judah in chapter 49. And let's read that blessing, starting in verse 8. As Jacob, old and frail, 130-whatever-plus-year-old man, looks at his son Judah and says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons 
shall bow down before you. Pause. Does that sound familiar? What happened with Joseph? His, his brothers bowed down to him. And everybody knows that at this point, right? That's been revealed. And now, as a part of this blessing, it's not Joseph anymore, is it? It's you, Judah. Look around. They're going to be bowing to you. This is a significant part of the blessing, but it goes on. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He was he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Uh, these blessings, these ancient oracles, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of strange wording that we're not used to. So there, there's so much significant, significance of what's going on here. We need to stop and unpack it a little bit. So we're going to do that right now because the main blessing is not just for Judah. The main blessing, this blessing goes far beyond Judah and even affects our lives too. So why Judah? I mentioned his older brothers. They blew it. I don't think they're repentant. I don't think they've been humbled by their sin. But as we've seen already, Judah isn't perfect either, but he has been humbled. And uh, beginning with Tamar and on through how he interacted with Joseph, he stood up for Joseph and uh, the younger brother Benjamin in ways that reveal this is a man of growing character, that God has used him. I believe he has repented, and there's something uh, far more significant that God is preparing him for that begins to emerge out of this blessing. So Judah isn't any better than anybody else. He's blown it like everybody else. He is blessed because and solely because of God's grace at work in his life, transforming him, truly changing him into what God wants him to be. So by God's grace, Judah is elevated to prominence in this blessing. So there's three things that we want to talk about as we wrap this up this morning. Three things that point us forward, ultimately, to a greater blessing through the Son of God coming to redeem his people and bring salvation. First of all, he is Judah is mentioned as a lion of the tribe of Judah. We sang just a few moments ago about the lion of the tribe of Judah. This points us not only to Judah and his significance and his power before his people, but also we get to look back through the lens of the gospel, right, and the New Testament. And uh, even as we look back, we, look, we can look forward in, in our Bibles all the way to the book of Revelation chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. At the end, uh, John is weeping and, and nothing else can happen because no one's worthy to open the scrolls. And the angel says, look, there is somebody worthy. And in chapter 5, who are we introduced to? Do you know? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see the lion not just as a lion anymore, but as a lamb who has been beaten, who's bloody, who has gone the distance for our sin, who has offered himself up as a sacrifice. All through Scripture, 
We see the, the presence and the understanding of the Messiah coming uh, primarily as that lion, as the conquering king. But in Isaiah and other uh, prophecies, other books of the Bible, we are introduced to this idea that the lion's going to come, but the first time he comes, he comes as a lamb to offer himself as a sacrifice. So what we see, combining those two ideas, those two images of lion and lamb, power and strength proven in humble sacrifice. Judah gives us this glimpse of what is yet to come with the lion and the lamb. So that's happening at the end of Genesis. What else, what else is happening? So we're, we're introduced to this idea of a scepter, a ruling scepter uh, that is a part of this blessing, that Judah will have it, okay? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. We have this idea of him standing here and holding the scepter. That's the idea in the wording there. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Different ways to translate that, and, and uh, the ancient Hebrew, I guess, is, is difficult with that. Uh, we have what ESV says, uh, the scepter, scepter shall not depart, uh, and it won't depart until tribute comes to him, okay? Or in another way to say it, until he comes to whom it belongs. So right, right in this chapter 49, we have embedded in there a prophecy of someone else coming. You get that? At least that much, right? There is somebody else coming. Jacob is saying, Judah, you have the scepter for now. So that it's, at this point, it's ambiguous, right? They don't rule anything. Uh, they have land on loan from the Pharaoh, okay? That's all, they, it's, it's good land, but that's all they've got right now. But he's saying that there is a scepter that's going to be in your hand, Judah. Now, he never physically gets the scepter in Egypt. He never, he never becomes a ruler there, but his line does. From Judah becomes King David, and eventually from King David becomes Joseph and Jesus. It's true. What God does, what God speaks through Jacob and that blessing then becomes a reality. Generations later, that scepter never does depart. What happens with David happens with Jesus. The true king is coming. And that just gives me goosebumps when I think about it. As Jacob, Jacob doesn't know what he's talking about as he gives this blessing. I don't think he does. But God speaks through him to Judah. And they're all, I can just imagine, they're all looking at a scepter. What? No, what, what are you talking about? The true king is coming. And you get to realize right now, even though you'll never meet David or whatever, he's coming. He's coming from you, and it's going to happen. God hasn't forgotten about anything. God has not forgotten his people. Yeah, you're stuck in Egypt. You're alive now. You're not starving, right, in, in Canaan. But someday the king will come. And he's going to come from you, Judah. That's an awesome moment in this blessing that I'm sure they didn't really fully comprehend. And then there's this talk about wine, okay? Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What in the world is that about, okay? Well, 
uh, here we go. We need to unpack this a little bit because this is really cool. No one who has a donkey ties it to a grapevine, okay? I've never owned a donkey. Uh, I've got two dogs I think act like donkeys, but that's as close as, I mean, we didn't have a donkey on the farm or a mule or whatever, but anybody have any experience of donkeys or mules? Zero. I can say whatever I want at this point. This is awesome. Because my guess is they are probably not to be trusted around something as valuable as a vine or a part of a vineyard. Okay? Can we at least go there? I don't know what they would do. They'd eat it or they'd, they'd, they'd probably do something to destroy it. I, I, I kind of put donkeys with goats. I, I don't know if that's really true either. But I would imagine they'd eat stuff and they'd wreck stuff. Okay? And in this oracle, this blessing, what does he do? He binds his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. No one does that. So why would he do that? Is he absent-minded? Is he not taking into consideration what's going on? Is he foolish? I don't think that any of those are the option. I think there is something more, there's something greater, even more extravagant about the presence of the vine and the grapes in this image. So abundant and so fruitful, so meaningful is that vine in this blessing. Uh, and so extravagant, I'll use that word, so extravagant is what this image is, what's going on here, that you could even tie a donkey to the end of the vine and not have to worry, okay? There is such a blessing. We've already looked at blessings, and they're great, but this is ramping it up. This is escalating the blessing. I think he's trying to give us an image of just how great the blessing is, and this is how he portrays it, that Judah and his line are a part, are the beginning of this extravagant blessing. And so many times when there's extravagance and there's abundance, there's wine present in Old Testament and New Testament. So I don't think there's a coincidence that when it comes down to Jesus's first miracle, what is involved? It's wine. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 2. John's the only gospel writer that has this miracle we need to read at least part of it here to get the full understanding of what's going on. Uh, John chapter 2, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus is there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And gee, this is almost comical, okay, when you read this. You ever think that there's, there's funny stuff in the Bible? Okay, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman... <laughs> Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm not even charged of the party, okay? Why are you coming to me uh, with, this, with this problem, right? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then she walks off. <laughs> I love that. I mean, maybe you have a mother or a mother-in-law, whatever, that's kind of in charge and everybody knows that, right? I, I, I just get that vibe that she, you know, tells him she, he should do something, and he's kind of resisting at first. This isn't my thing. My time has not yet come. It's not my problem. And then she goes to the servant, do what he says. And she, and she walks off. I love it. Okay, 
So she says that, and then verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding, get this, 20 or 30 gallons. These are massive containers, okay? You don't just easily plop them up to the well or whatever. So I don't know how they filled them, and it must have taken some time. But Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know whether it came, did not know where it came from, though the servants who draw on the water knew. Can you imagine the looks on their faces? What is happening? Okay. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I love this account, the extravagance of what Jesus does that apparently, at least as we have it, as John tells us, wasn't even a part of the plan in the first place. But as he works this miracle, the response is you've saved the best for last. I think, there is, again, it's not a coincidence that his first miracle emphasizes the extravagance and the abundance that comes with Jesus and the gospel. And then, as verse 11 says, manifest the glory of God. This isn't about a party and the host looking like he's got egg on his face because he wasn't prepared, okay? It's not about that. The greater picture is the glory of God. Jesus provides something that blows everybody out of the water, (laughs) into enjoying the wine of his presence in this good news moment. What happens all the way back with this blessing of Jacob is now realized. Jesus is here. And the gospel is proclaimed in the abundance of what it is that he gives. New wine that pours out and satisfies. And in this moment, as God the Father is glorified, we begin to see even greater and perceive even more that our longing for home and the ultimate blessing that comes of being in our ultimate forever home is the taste of new wine that Jesus offers that only he can, right? This doesn't come from anywhere else. Jesus points us to home. And that is a beautiful thing in this blessing. In the, the echo of it, all the way back from ancient times with Jacob. We get to see and know his blessings today, and they are many, and they are great, but they are temporary. And the longing that we still have only can truly be satisfied in the Savior who looks at you. And every one of us has had moments where we think we're the least of these and not worthy, Right? And Jesus looks at you and says, you are my child and I give my life for you. And now someday you're going to have the richest of the best wine that I can ever create because I am storing this up and waiting for that moment when I can taste it again in the kingdom of God. Remember what he says to the disciples after that first communion, I will not taste this again until you're with me. The ultimate wine 
is waiting for us in our perfect, blessing, ultimate home with Jesus. My last thought is this. Are you caught up with blessings in this world, in this, in this life, in this body? Just remember, they are temporary. Use and remember, remind yourself of the longing that you still have, that it is only satisfied with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are reminded this morning of your goodness, and yet at the same time that we truly haven't seen anything yet. All of what it is that you have planned for that day when we finally come home, and faith becomes sight, and we realize and experience this place you've gone on to prepare for us, and that as you say that where I am, you will also be, oh Jesus, creating us a deeper longing that only you and fulfill, that finally someday when faith becomes sight, we can be with you. Jesus, in the meantime, draw us past and through the temporary things to keep our eyes on the eternal things, that all this stuff and all this struggle is worth it. We don't look past at a, or back at 130 years and see only evil things. We see the hand of God in providence that you are at work and you have not forgotten. And all of this matters. We look forward, Lord, to that moment when it, all of it is realized. In Jesus' name, amen.